science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I feel it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about surgery. According to the American Board of Surgery, a surgeon will, on average, perform 398 surgeries per year. That seems like a lot, right? And something that I think some of us don't really think about, apart from medical surgeons, many scientists also have reason to perform surgery as part of their work. So, while today's stories are both about surgery, they come from two very different surgeons operating on two very different patients in very different situations. Our first story is from Paula Croxon. It was recorded in October 2018 at Caveat in New York City. The show was presented in collaboration with Rock EDU and ASBMB's Sci Out 2018 Unconference. I never really liked surgery days. I'm good at it. I'm very good at it. I spent years of long, long days being taught, observing, practicing, being critiqued and honing my skills. So I know I'm good at it, but something could always go wrong. I'm only human. And so I'd wake up in the morning of surgery day with a dry mouth that wouldn't go away all day. Uh, and I couldn't have any coffee because my hands would shake. Um, and also, I didn't want to have to stop and pee in the middle of an eight to 10 hour long procedure. Um, and I wouldn't make myself eat breakfast though because I needed to be alert and strong and uh, not feel dizzy. And so I would make sure that I had my little routine um, to steal myself for the day. I set the timer for five minutes. I hit my knee into the button to turn on the water and run warm water over my hands. I pull open the sterile metal packet and pull out the scrub brush. It's covered in a, in a sort of pinky um, soap that smells like chemicals. And I start to scrub in. Um, I use a bristle side first um, on the backs of my hands and the sides of my fingers. And I scrub 20 times on the left side of my left index finger, and then on the back, and then on the right side, and so on, covering every surface of my hand 20 times. On my palms and my fingertips, the sensitive skin, I switch to the sponge side and I scrub the same. I scrub all the way up my arms to my elbows until my arms are already aching and I haven't even started the day yet. Then I rinse my hands off, the timer goes off at the same time. I've got this down to a fine art. I gown up, put on my gloves, and go to help set up. My colleague is already there, chatting about his weekend plans and uh, unpacking instruments. My research assistant is there too. It's his first day in surgery. He's a little nervous, but excited to learn and ready to help. And there's a monkey on the table. 
wrapped in blankets and draped with a sterile sheet, his head shaved um, and swabbed with uh, iodine to make it sterile, so it's yellow. He looks tiny under there. I know this monkey. I've worked with him for, for a couple of years now, teaching him a complex memory task. Um, so complex that only primates can really do it. Um, and um, working toward the goal of finding out something that will help to find a prevention or maybe even a cure for Alzheimer's disease or dementia. Um, I care about him because I've spent hours working with him over those years and because he's expensive, but I also just care about him. It's hard not to form a bond after you spend that much time. And so we need a full team of people to take care of this little guy. My colleague and I will do the surgery. My RA will assist. There's two veterinary technicians just to do the anesthesia, just to make sure that everything is okay. And there's a veterinarian in the room just to the start of surgery, just to oversee and make sure that everything goes smoothly. And so we're ready to go. Um, and I start to help unpack the instruments. I open the sterile packs and I tip the instruments onto the steel table covered with a sterile white sheet. Forceps, scissors, hemostat clamps, a scalpel handle, a scalpel blade, which is in one of those metal packets too. I open it, I hold the scalpel blade properly in a pair of clamps and the handle, I click them together, and then I drive the point of the scalpel straight into the end of my right index finger. I don't have time to think. I grab my finger and I swing away from the sterile table because I know that it won't be sterile if I bleed on it. My blood is full of millions of little pathogens. So instead I bleed down the wall and on the floor and my finger is gushing blood. And then I go next door past the glass partition and through the open door into the prep room because like any good surgeon, I'm kind of squeamish and I usually pass out when I cut my hands. <laughs> my colleague sees me through the open door, sitting on the floor, head between my knees next to a red clinical waste trash can and says, uh, are you all right? Uh, I say, oh, I will be, I just need to sit here until I stop feeling like I'm going to pass out. And then, uh, and then I'll scrub back in and I'll come and help. And he says, fine, I've got this. And the veterinarian says, you're going to have to scrub that. And I say, I know, I know, I'm not sterile anymore, but I just have to sit here first because I feel really faint. And she says, no, you're going to have to scrub that now. And through my haze, I realize what she means. Some rhesus monkeys have a virus called herpes B virus. Um, it's a herpes virus, not unlike the herpes viruses that cause cold sores or genital warts in humans. Um, it uh, causes conjunctivitis in monkeys um, and um, it can make them feel kind of run down. Um, like human herpes viruses, uh, it's passed through fluid contact. Um, and like human herpes viruses, it's incurable. But unlike human herpes viruses, if it gets into a human and it crosses the blood-brain barrier into the central nervous system, it can cause viral encephalitis and the person could die. And there's a protocol in place for this. And the first part of the protocol involves scrubbing the affected area for 15 minutes. 
So she says to me, you're going to have to scrub that for 15 minutes right now. And I say, I don't think I can. <laughs> I feel really faint. And she says, do you give me your consent to scrub it for you? And somewhere in the back of my brain, a little voice says, you don't need this. The scalpel blade was sterile. But I'm weak and I'm woozy and she's a veterinarian and she must be right. And so I say, okay. And so she takes me gently by the hand and leads me over to the scrub sink. And she starts to scrub my hand. She opens one of those brushes and she takes it out. She runs the water and she starts to scrub the tip of my finger, and my open wound with the bristle side. I don't remember the next part, but I have it on good authority that I was screaming at the top of my lungs. And when I come to my senses, I'm doubled over the metal scrub sink with my head on the cool stainless steel. And one of the veterinarians, one of the vet techs is holding me up by the shoulders so I don't collapse onto the floor. I'm vaguely aware that surgery is still going on behind me with the door open. And oh God, my RA, it's his first day. <laughs> and I'm worried about him. And I'm deeply embarrassed by the guttural animal sounds that are coming out of my mouth. And I'm pissed because I don't need this. We haven't even touched the monkey yet. And the scalpel blade was sterile, and this is not necessary. And thankfully, at this point, the vet has switched to using the sponge side. And I say in a very quiet voice, do you think someone could get me a chair? So they get me a chair, and she scrubs me for another 10 minutes. And I just kind of sit there <laughs> at this point. Um, and eventually, she stops. She turns off the water. I wrap my bloody flayed open fingertip in a paper towel. I strip off my sweat-stained surgical gown and I go to employee health. There's one person in employee health who knows what to do if someone's had an exposure to herpes B virus. Um, she knows to call the CDC. She knows to take blood from you and get someone to take blood from the monkey and a swab from you and a swab from the monkey and send it all off and give you a two-week course of antivirals just in case something should happen. And I find her and she says, why are you here? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> And I tell her what happened, and she said, yep, you don't need to be here. There is zero chance that you have herpes B virus. And she sends me away. It never even occurs to me to question whether I should go back to surgery. There's no one else to do it. My colleague can't do it on his own. It's my RA's first day. Everyone else is running the anesthesia. We're a small team, and everyone has their part. So I go back to the unit and I try and get in, only I can't because it's a fingerprint reader and I've destroyed my fingerprint. <laughs> and I hesitate, it's going to be a long day. I have at least eight more hours of standing without time to pee. I'm gonna be in pain. I'm probably going to make it worse by handling metal instruments. I'm probably going to bleed inside my surgical gloves and have to replace them. But the pain that I'm going to go through is nothing compared with the headache the monkey's going to have when he wakes up. 
And who else is going to sit with him for hours after surgery to make sure that he's okay? And somebody has to do this work. And if it has to be somebody, it should be me. And it should be my team. It should be people who are so well-trained and so attentive and who care so much that they'll scrub the shit out of the end of someone's finger just to make sure they don't get B virus. And so I get security to let me in. And I scrub in again. And I go to work. Thank you. That was Paula Croxon. Paula is one of our amazing Story Collider producers and hosts here in New York, as well as a neuroscientist, a musician, and an open water swimmer. She earned her PhD from the University of Oxford before moving to New York to run a neuroscience lab. She is now Senior Manager for Education Programs at Columbia University's Zuckerman Institute. She is also the flautist in alternative rock band Marlo Gray and nerdy rock band Pavlov's Dogs. The swimming is apparently for fun. <laughs> Before we continue, I want to remind everyone that we have some exciting changes coming to the Story Collider podcast next month. Stay tuned for the big reveal. In the meantime, do you have questions about Story Collider? Maybe you'd like to know how the show is made or where we find the stories or maybe you have a question about your favorite storyteller. Whatever they may be, send us your questions to contact at storycollider.org. We'll answer them here on the podcast during a special bonus episode we're planning for September. That's contact at storycollider.org. We're also revamping our Patreon community this fall. If you're not familiar with patreon.com, it's a place where you can sign up to donate a small amount every month to Story Collider or other nonprofits or projects, and in return you receive bonus content or rewards. As we rethink our offerings this fall, I'd like to hear more about what you, as our listeners, might be excited about. Would you be psyched to get bonus episodes featuring previously unreleased stories, or maybe bonus episodes with behind-the-scenes content and storytelling craft discussions, maybe follow-up interviews with past storytellers? Maybe you'd like to get access to live streams of our live shows around the world, or an online community where you can connect and chat about the stories? Maybe you're all about those one-time physical rewards like t-shirts, posters, or mugs. Or maybe there's something else we haven't even thought of yet. Let us know at contact at storycollider.org. We're excited to hear from you. Our next story today is from Bhuvanesh Singh. It was recorded in December 2018 at the Mortimer B. Zuckerman Research Center Auditorium here in New York. This show was presented in collaboration with the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Oh my goodness. Um, I don't know if I can talk after all that. Um, I'm going to first thank both Miriam and Aaron for all the advice they gave. They said, don't have more than one drink. No comment. They said, don't grab the microphone or pull it around. No comment. Um, they said, don't use props. Ed, can I have my first set of slides, please? <laughs> I'm going to have to use props. I'm sorry. Um, you have to cut to cure. 
That was the mantra. That was the central focus of all of my surgical training. That's what I was being taught. When I first met Alice, I had finished four years of medical school. I had finished six years of residency training, and I was deep into a two-and-a-half-year fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering. So the way that I thought about my role as a surgeon was pretty well established. I knew, I knew my job. My job was, of course, to cut to cure. That's what I was meant to do. Now, Alice had cancer of the tongue, and she was very atypical. So first off, she was very young. She was only 36, and most people who have tongue cancer are older, and they tend to be smokers and drinkers, and Alice clearly was not. So that made her different. Oh, there was, there was actually one other thing that made her different. Alice was pregnant. Okay, it's going to be tough. I'm sorry. So as I walked into her room, she was talking to her husband. She was going over the details of everything that he needed to do while she was in the hospital. As I watched her, she was confident. She was focused. She was completely in control of everything that was going on in the room. So I did what I had done so many times before. I started to take her history. I started to fill out the paperwork that was required to get, the, get her ready for surgery. That, that, as a fellow, that was my job, and that's what I needed to do. And of course, as I did this, I kept my interaction professional, surgical, efficient. Let me get this done so we can move on to the really important stuff, which is the actual operation. <laughs> Alice, though, she wasn't having any of that. She wanted much more than this fact-filled surgical interaction. And you see, Alice was a real force, and I quickly realized I had no choice but to sit and talk with her. She, there was no other opportunity for me. And so we ended up talking for a while, and when we first started talking, all I can think was, man, this is so inefficient. I have so much other work to do. But as we talked, her guards came down. And as I think back, so did mine. She told me about her two-year-old son. She told me about her pregnancy, and I told her about my family. You see, I was about the same age. I also had a two-year-old son, and my wife and I were expecting our second child. So the similarities were obvious, and for, for those reasons, and for many, many more, we were obviously completely connected. And so we kept talking until her husband finally left the room, and when he did, her voice cracked. And I looked at her, and there was sheer terror in her eyes. She brought back her tears. and She said to me that she had to live. 
She had to live because she had to take care of her son, and she had to take care of her unborn child. This situation was clearly not familiar to her. She was used to being in control. She was trying to hold on. She was trying to stay strong. She was trying not to show her fear so that her husband wouldn't worry. That interaction really affected me, and I, at first I really didn't understand why. The one thing I knew at the end of that, though, is that I had to make sure that Alice was going to be okay. At that point, what that meant to me was that I had to make sure that her surgery went perfectly. The next day, Alice came into the operating room, and everyone was drawn to her. Her personality and her situation really broke through. Even the hardest in the room couldn't help but be drawn in and completely connected to her. And at some point, the room completely became silent. Everybody knew what was at stake. Everybody was doing their part to make sure that Alice was going to be okay and that she did well. The normal banter in the room wasn't there. The room felt completely silent. You can hear a pin drop in that room. I was hiding on, in a corner. I was going over the steps of the operation in my head and Alice saw me and she called out and she asked me to come over. And as I did, I desperately tried not to make eye contact with her. Maybe I didn't want her to see the concern that was in my eyes. Or maybe I didn't want to see the fear that were in her eyes. But Alice was a force, I had no choice. I walked over to the table and I held her hand. And as I did, from behind my mask, I said, Alice, don't worry, everything's gonna be okay. Everything will be okay. Those words completely reassured her, and I felt her relax. And as she went off to sleep, she thanked everyone. And we were ready. Alice needed a complicated five-hour operation. This involved taking out part of her tongue. It involved taking out the lymph nodes in her neck. And as, my, as a fellow, my responsibility was to help the attending surgeon and learn about the procedure and the process. But on that day, instead of assisting, I slowly took over. Nobody stopped me. You see, this was Alice. 
And it was my job to make her better. There wasn't anyone in the world that was going to do better than me that day. The surgery that day, it flowed like artwork. The room was absorbed. Everybody was watching the brushstrokes as the instruments were moving across the field. Every structure, even those that we normally don't even think about, were carefully identified and preserved. At the end, the cancer was completely removed. All the margins were clear. The surgical field was flawless. And even my typically very harsh and very judgmental attending had to stop and take notice. On that day, I was perfect. So, of course, we celebrated the surgical success with Alice and her family. We all felt that a weight had been lifted and a sense of order was somehow restored. To no one's surprise, Alice's recovery went way ahead of schedule. She was eating and speaking normally in two days. She was out of the hospital in four days. And a week later, she flew home with her family and went back to her normal life. Later, as I thought about what had just happened, I felt completely satisfied. I felt like I had done my job. I had no doubt in my mind that Alice and her family would now be okay. I had cut, and of course, now that meant that Alice would be cured. That's what I expected. In fact, that's what everyone expected. A few months passed. I was still a fellow. I was actively involved in my training. Under the heavy workload of the day and the countless surgeries that I was performing, Alice slowly became a distant memory. My experience with her, though, left me with a strong sense that surgery was indeed my primary purpose. I remained focused towards perfecting the precision and the efficiency of using cold steel to best care for the patients that I was treating. So one day, after a long case in the operating room, I was making rounds on the hospital floor, and an older woman came running across the floor. And as I watched her, I saw she was hiding something under her coat. And as I looked closer, she was hiding a baby under her coat. Now, the hospital can be a very dangerous place for babies. So I, I ran after her with a sense of urgency. And as I got to the room where she was going in, I had a whole lecture ready for her to say why she was doing this and how dangerous she was. But when I walked in, I 
My eyes were drawn to this gaunt and frail woman sitting in the hospital bed. She was in obvious pain. She was having trouble breathing. She was gasping for air. Her hair was frazzled and her eyes were barely open, but when she saw me, she perked up and she smiled. At first, I didn't recognize her. But when I looked in her eyes, I realized who she was. I felt my knees buckle. The room started spinning and I had to steady myself. There in the bed was Alice. She was barely recognizable. The woman that had been running across the floor was her mother, and the baby was her six-week-old six son that her mother was bringing to be with her. Alice's cancer had unfortunately progressed. I'd seen this look before. I knew exactly what it meant. And I saw in Alice's eyes, she also realized what was going on. Alice was dying. I was in complete shock. It's completely overwhelmed. I remember running out of the room and somehow find my way to a bathroom and I locked the door and then I completely broke down. I cried for what felt like hours. And at that moment, I began to replay every step in Alice's care, every step of her operation. I did everything right. In fact, I did everything perfectly. Why was she here? When I finally gathered myself, I washed away any evidence I was crying. I put on a brave face, and when I got to her room, I took a deep breath. And I went in, and Alice was really happy to see me. I just couldn't figure out why. I was so disappointed in myself.
So I hid my shame as we talked, and she filled me in on what had happened. She had flown home. Unfortunately, the pathology from the surgery has shown that the cancer has spread to the lymph nodes. Because of this, she had to endure seven weeks of very damaging and debilitating radiation therapy. But despite this aggressive treatment, the cancer had spread to her lungs. And at this point, at this point, I knew that there was absolutely no hope for curing her. As I sat in her room, I really struggled to control my emotions. Alice, on the other hand, she was as strong as ever. She was completely focused. She told me she had one goal. And she wanted my help to stay alive long enough to reach that goal. She wanted to write letters and make videos so that their son, her sons could read those letters and watch the videos for each of their birthdays until, she, until they turned 18 years old. What she wanted to do was make sure that her sons knew their mother. She wanted them to appreciate how much she loved them. And even though she wasn't going to be there, she wanted to make sure that they were somehow taken care of. Over the next few days, I checked on Alice regularly, every free minute I had. I did everything I could to help her stay alive. She was so, so strong. The levels of her pain were unimaginable. But she refused to take any pain medications because she wanted to stay focused and alert enough so that she could write letters and make the videos for her sons. I often watched her from outside her room. I saw her smiling and joking into the camera. She was putting on a brave face so her sons would see her in a good way. As she shared her feelings and her advice, she looked into the camera as if though she was looking at her boys. And I really prayed that her boys would see her eyes that were so full of hope and her smile that was so infectious and not the obvious pain and sorrow that she was desperately, desperately trying to hide. The time for me with Alice was incredibly challenging. I really began to think I had made a mistake. I felt I had failed and that was difficult for me to overcome. Well, you see, Alice, she somehow knew exactly what I was thinking. And late one night when we were talking, she paused. 
She looked up at me. She took a hold of my hand. And she told me, it's okay. It's okay. She told me how much she appreciated everything I had done for her, and especially the time that I had spent with her, and how much she valued the care that I had given to her. Almost as if so she could read my mind, she reassured me, and she asked me to take care of others like I had taken care of her. Her words were powerful. They were healing. Much more so than any scalpel or medicine that I had that I could give her. You know, at that moment, instead of me taking care of her, she was actually taking care of me. Even at the end, she felt better by making sure that those around her were taken care of, including me. So through sheer will over the next three days, Alice made all of her videos and completed all of her letters. I don't think you'll ever appreciate how difficult this was for her to do. And when she finished, she was elated, and we all celebrated. And a few hours later, she died. I cried with her family, and I cried so many times after that, I just lost count. It's hard to believe, but that was over 20 years ago. It really feels like yesterday. This is actually the first time I've been able to share Alice's story in public. And I really felt the need to share her story. Because you see, Alice helped me appreciate the most important thing about being a doctor. She made me realize that it's not about precision and cold steel but rather about easing fears. It isn't about cutting the cure, but about caring and using hugs and laughter to heal. I feel so privileged to do what I do now, but today I see my role as a surgeon very differently. It's my job to help people during their most difficult time. It's my job to try and help them heal. I guess it's my job to try and do exactly what Alice did for me. That was Bhuvanesh Singh. Bhuvanesh is an attending surgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. 
He has cared for over 5,000 patients with cancer in his over 20-year career at the center. He has helped to refine surgical techniques, contributed to the improvements in cancer staging, and has been involved in research that has dramatically changed the management of cancers of the head and neck region and lung. Not satisfied with available treatment options, Bhuvanesh completed a PhD in medical molecular biology to pursue lab research. His laboratory work has led to the development of novel anti-cancer compounds that are currently being optimized for use in the treatment of many different types of cancers. The story Bhuvanesh shared with us occurred almost 20 years ago and was a defining moment in his career and life. Thanks so much for sharing it with us, Boov. Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, along with Catherine Wu and Miriam Saringhollum. The podcast is edited by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders, with podcast editors Joan Chen and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Psy Out, Memorial Sloan Kettering, and Caveat for hosting these shows, and to all the surgeons out there going the extra mile to be there for their patients, no matter who they are. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.